Uh, so every summer, my side of our uh, extended family gets together at the same week, at the same beach we've been going to for 37 years. It's this little place in South Carolina in the United States called Kiwa Island, and I love this place. In fact, I wish I could just like, like, take us all in a bus or hovercraft or something. We could all go together, have a church retreat at this island because it's so much fun, which reminds me we should do a church retreat sometime. So any of you guys stashing away a house on the East End I don't know about, please, please let me know. But I love this place, it, it, fireworks, baseball, uh, paddleboarding, soccer, golf, uh, ghost crabs fishing, carnivals with cousins, nieces, nephews, grandmas, grandpas, brother, sister. Just love it. In fact, my sister is one of the, my favorite parts of the trip. My sister and I have always been very close. But with everything that I described going on on a typical week, and including this past summer, we were having a hard time catching up. So we were three or four days in. We hadn't had a proper chat yet, like a brother and sister should, especially as good friends. And so we're biking along, and she pulls up to me, and, and we're both really tired. Got lots of kids, lots going on. And she pulls up, and she says, So, brother... And I can tell she's, she's thinking of a question to ask me. She can't get it out. So in exhaustion, she kind of whines, would you just, just tell me a good story? <laughs> and I said, well, that's not the way you typically address people socially. <laughs> tell me a good story. I can't just think a story off at the top of my head. But while I stand by that statement, that that's not typical social convention, she was really on to something in that pure, exhausted moment where you're just kind of thinking the very basics of what you want. She just wants to hear a good story. And I think she's on to something because I, I find myself, and maybe you do too, asking less and less the question, what do you do? What do you do for a living when I meet someone for the first time? I really want to hear, first of all, a little bit about themselves, a little bit about maybe how long they've been here on island. What do they, what do they like to do for fun? Or what part of the island do they live on? And I'm, what I'm trying to get at is their history, their passions, what sort of makes them tick. What I'm trying to find out is a little bit of their story. And I don't think I'm alone in that. This filmmaker named Paul Schrader, he, he, he did a bit of research on this, and he, he estimated that the average 35-year-old with just, just average or basic media savvy has watched or listened to 35 thousand hours, 35,000 hours of audiovisual narrative in their lifetime, just after 35 years. Whether it be movies, YouTube, great podcasts we can find, or especially those crisply constructed, made for TV, made for Netflix, made for some web platform kind of series, right? They're so well done. Such great stories. 35,000 hours, 35 years. It's incredible. Well over twice what our parents would have consumed. And it's because we love story. Story is how we want to know and how we want to be known. We, we want to know story to grow. We want to know other stories so we can grow a little bit more. We want to share our story so they may be able to grow a little bit more. Ultimately, we wonder, is there then a bigger story? So that, all, that all of our lives intersect with? And I would say yes. I would say it's a story that's already written. 
It's a story already written, so it has its advantages. But we can already know ahead of time the beginning, the middle, and most importantly, the end of this story. Also, you're freely offered a part in it. Everyone has an opportunity to have a role in this story. David Arms is a gifted artist, and he's the artist who designed this panel above me, which is called God's Story. And we're going to use this panel as our storyboard for the next six weeks. I think with visual richness, it describes the basic story laid out for us in the Bible. That story is creation, fall, grace, and glory. And so I want this morning to begin by just looking at this piece of art together. Because sometimes a picture's worth a thousand words, right? So on the far left, we see the first chapter of the story, which is creation. Three chickadees with a cheerful disposition represent Adam and Eve. And all of creation who who cheerfully sing praise to God from the moment they're created. We see this bright red apple, which, which presents God's provision and His one prohibition. All is as it's intended to be, as God has created it. But as we move to the right in the panel, we see the fall, underscored by ashen hues, which denote the polluting and destructive nature of our rebellion. The chaotic screeches of a raven replace the unified, simple song of a chickadee. Representing the, the chaos that we now live in, the world we live in, which is slowly dilapidating, of course, the dead tree in the middle, which represents us. We sense that we're running out of sap, that we're running out of life. Unpictured, but part of the story is the time spent between the fall and grace. It's this time that we spend striving towards God, but we can never be like God. We can never meet His standard. That is this time, the season in between grace and glory. Or sorry, sorry, in between the fall and grace. And then as we keep moving to the right, we see grace. Grace is represented by three butterflies, right? Representing life from death. They're playfully fluttering about, suggesting the freedom we have when God redeems us from sin, when He rescues us from sin by His grace. And of course, there's no ordinary tree. The tree by which He saves us are two trees put together, a cross. Not pictured here also is this season, this part of the story, which is in between grace and glory. It's a time of tension where we sense something is right about us but still wrong with the world. And still, in fact, some things wrong with us. And then finally, as we move to the right, we get the conclusion to our story. Chapter 4, which is glory. Represented by these multicolored birds are left. That, that there's, a, there's a multicoloredness. There's going to be a diversity to eternity. The eternity we spend with God and with the people we spend eternity with will be very diverse as well. There's now abundant fruit, isn't there? multiplying everywhere off the panel, suggesting that the, the richness of, of, of glory and of goodness that we're going to experience of God is beyond our wildest dreams. This is God's story, already planned and written. And yet, it's the story being written into us as well. We each have a role. We are among the central players in the story. The themes of creation, fall, grace, glory, spread, over seasons of our life, but they're also kind of the normal rhythms of our life. Week to week, month to month, quarter to quarter. We experience creation, fall, grace, and glory. It's part of our story. And whenever we open the Bible, we find others 
in one of these scenes. Strugglers and stragglers, more like us than we like to believe, <laughs> struggling through the fall, especially grace, glory. Even as we open our word, we find this word God's given to us, we find ourselves in the story, and we find out more about the God who's writing it into us. So we can begin to make sense out of our own story by participating in God's. That's what we're going to be talking about in the next six weeks. So we're going to tell you God's story so you can find your role in it, and not only find it, but flourish in that role. So I hope you're looking forward to that. We start at the beginning. Find a Bible, if you would, and open to Genesis chapter 1. Hopefully I don't need to give you a page number for that. It is at the very beginning of the Bible, among the first pages, actually. Genesis chapter 1. So I want you to stay active with me as we read through Genesis 1. 1 and 2, because we're going to have to move kind of quickly, and we hope to end at a reasonable time. So Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And so the next five days proceed along similar lines. So day two basically is about precipitation. God speaks about water above the earth and beneath it. Day three is about land, which God separates from the sea. He also adds plants, flower, fauna, trees created. Day four is about our solar system. Night, day, sun, moon, and stars. Day five creates the sea and sky animals and tells them all, be fruitful, multiply. Day six starts out similarly. God creates land animals and concludes that God saw that it was good. There's more to day six. It continues in an interesting but also peculiar way. Catch up with me here in Genesis 2.26. Then God says, sorry, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And behold, I have given you plant-yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. Skip down to verse 31. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Then we get to Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He had rested on the seventh day from all the work that he'd done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush or the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground. A mist was going up from the land. It was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, 
And there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made up spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of the garden to water the garden. And God goes on to, we can hear to talk about four different rivers. Skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man, he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what the man would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on him. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed it with, a, with flesh, closed the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. Ooh, all right. <laughs> Chapter one of God's story is a story of creation. And on reading it, I wonder if you noticed this too. It really reads like two stories, doesn't it? A lot of the the facts, the very basic events you heard in chapter 1, you hear again in chapter 2. And if you notice that, you wouldn't be the first to notice it. In fact, most of the early Christians, people who first became Christians, made a point of also noticing it. One of the most famous was was a bishop named Augustine. He's one of the early church fathers. And he noticed this difference. He noticed, well, wait a minute, Genesis chapter 1 talks about these events, and Genesis chapter 2 kind of repeats them, but almost from a different angle. So he said that chapter 1 of Genesis is like creation in the mind of God. And Genesis chapter 2 is like creation in time and space worked out. I would put it similarly, but a little differently. That chapter 1 of Genesis is like creation from heaven cam. It's, it's like the 20,000 foot, however many thousand feet view of heaven when you want to get out there, view of creation. It's heaven cam. God is saying things while he's in heaven, apparently to someone else. And we kind of overhear it. Uh, he's given commands from on high. Sorry, in chapter 1. In chapter 2, it's more like the earth. You get the details about Adam and Eve, what their digs are like, the day-to-day responsibilities they have in the garden. And so it's almost like you're seeing creation from the point of view of a human being, like you're there. In chapter 1, you're seeing creation from this sort of majestic point of view, which you can kind of understand, but since you're not God and you've never been to heaven, at least as far as you've experienced, it's kind of a little more difficult. Have you guys ever seen Les Mis? The play, the movie, or otherwise? Les Mis. You probably have at least seen the movie. And you may not know that there's actually two different versions of this movie. One recently was nominated for an Academy Award. And it's a, more of a musical version. All right, that stars Hugh Jackman. Uh, I forgot the other, Russell Crowe, Anne Hathaway. But there was an older 90s version of Les Mis that was put on film, starring Liam Neeson, Claire Danes, Uma Thurman. And that was just a straight play. There was no music, it was all narrative. 
in the narrative version, it was very easy to comprehend because everything was from a human point of view. But you missed sort of some of the grandeur and the feeling that you got with song. But in the other version, the more recent version, the musical version, we, or at least I, don't get everything that's going on in the play. And, and you know, I, I get the songs, I love the music. I don't really get everything that's going on in the musical because it has a little bit of poetry to it. it there, there, but you, you don't get everything going on, but you get the feeling behind it. You get the grandeur, the spectacle. Genesis 1 is the grand almost exalted prose, it's called. It's written this thing called exalted prose. It is like the, the sort of musical where you get this mix of, of grandness and you get this repetition, almost like a song, but you also get a story in it. So that's important with Genesis 1 because we come to Genesis 1, whenever we read it, with questions about how God created all of this. How did God create all of this? Was it an evolutionary process? through which God created this earth and all that's in it. Was it a big bang? How do we reconcile what we know about science into this account of Genesis chapter 1? But Genesis 1 isn't written to address all the details of how. Of how it was put together. We need to take care, in fact, not to press Genesis 1 too hard for too many details to figure out how does all this work with what I know too about science. Like, like the musical, Genesis 1 is meant to help us sense the grandeur and the heart behind creation. So chapter 1 helps us a little less with how, but very much with why did God create this? What is, what is the heart behind it all? So let's start with that question for explaining the first part of God's story. Why? Why did God create? Why did he create human beings? Why did he create me? Some people think that God created human beings because he was lonely or because he was bored. Or just because he wanted his own indentured servants to work and labor over this thing he calls earth. The first chapter of Genesis tells us why he created. Look at verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now what's going on here? What is this our talk? What is this us talk? Some say that God is talking to the angels who may look a little like us. And he's saying, hey, let's make man in our image. Right, angels? But we know from God's Word, for example, Isaiah 40, says that God doesn't take counsel with anyone in making His decrees. He doesn't take counsel. He doesn't get advice from anyone in what He's going to do. So what's happening here? Our answer is found in the opening verses of Genesis. That God created. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God spoke. God said something. For each created thing... God uses a word. He speaks to, to detonate creation. To detonate the next created thing. And in John chapter 1, we find out who that word is. It's not just a word, it's a person. It's Jesus. Jesus is the word that has existed from the beginning of time. Jesus is the detonation that creates every living thing that we have on this earth. And so we're immediately told something about God as soon as we open our story of the Bible. That God is a community. He is three and one. One God expressed in three persons. So that means he wasn't lonely or bored at creation. In fact, he is an eternally loving, communing God, Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They all honor each other, love each other, exalt each other from the beginning of time. So what's happening then at creation? Something different. You could think of the Trinity almost like a roundabout, right? You come into a roundabout with three different channels. 
and circling in the roundabouts all this love and all this honor and all this goodness. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in verse 26, there's like a heavenly conversation. Hey guys, let's expand the circle. Let's expand the roundabout. Let's add one more intersection to expand this love. Let us make man. He doesn't want us to miss this invitation into free-flowing, this free-flowing roundabout of love and community. And so he does something else. He says, now let's not just make man, let's make man in our image. And that's important. That means that the first invitation extended to you and I to this eternal, divine, loving relationship with God comes by just looking in the mirror. God prepared us for this banquet, for this party, for this love affair with Him by making us in His image. To notice in ourselves something different from the animals. It's only after creating humanity that God says in verse 31, it was very good. It was only after creating humanity that God says in, in, in chapter 2, we find out that God finally rested from His work. He finished His work. He knew after making humanity, it's complete. And this circle of love has been extended. God seems to be saying two things by putting us, creating us into His image. Putting His image into us. Don't miss the invitation in the community with me. Don't miss His invitation in the community with me. And don't miss the invitation in the community with others who are made like you, who are made in the same image as you're made. Our first role, my first role in God's story of creation is to value God's image in every person. First in yourself, because no matter how bad things are, or how how bad things, how, how badly you mess up in your life, you can just look in the mirror and recognize that God has given you His qualities, the qualities of Himself, all in lesser degree. So for instance, God is all-knowing. He knows everything. Well, we can know some things. We can intuitively understand some things too. Things that animals can't necessarily get. We can remember. We can solve problems. We can express creativity. We can communicate. We can understand that some things are morally right and some things are morally wrong. This comes because God has made us in His image. And in doing so, is extended an invitation saying, you belong with me slash us in community. Second, we're meant to value God's image in others. Others who are like and unlike us together. You know, Eve looked like Adam in some ways, right? Ears, nose, mouth, eyes. And she didn't look like Adam in other ways, right? Like other ways, <laughs> right? And, and so Adam wakes up from a deep sleep and he sees this person who's like him, but very also unlike him. And what does he do? He immediately values God's image in that person. The sameness, but also the difference to the point where we hear the first song that man utters in all creation. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Have you ever woken up next to someone you didn't know? Well, for some of you, yes, but uh, that's not what I mean by that. On a trip to New Orleans one time, not too long after Hurricane Katrina, a team of us kind of got together. We were working on uh, helping clean up for Katrina and helping clean up homes and stuff. And we worked really hard. We got up at 5.30 a.m. We worked all day and had a late lunch. And I remember I was just so dog-tired. It was the third day we'd done this and and just to some hard manual labor. And if you know me well, uh, I'm not very handy. So there's extra things that go along with that, extra exhaustion. So 
we had our lunch, and I literally fell asleep on a lawn chair. I just, just knocked out. And in the meantime, our team, they'd gone behind that property to another property behind a building, leaving me alone. So when I woke up, in the middle of some New Orleans projects, I woke up with a, a man five feet away from me, a, a brother who was definitely from another mother, all right? And, and, and my reaction to that, all alone, this man I don't know, Project New Orleans, was, to be honest, fear. It was taking my lawn chair and slinking away from that person, different from me, like me, but different from me. And that's the challenge, isn't it? We're all made in God's image, but yet some of us still fear one another. And we, we do things out of fear, and we don't commune with one another out of fear. Because we see the likeness, but we all see the difference. All people are invited to come into this community around the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, including people like and unlike us. Second role in creation is this. Delighting and poinciennas and mangoes. And the Hebrew word for created, it's a word that's only used of God. He is the only one who creates. The only one. Only God created something out of absolutely nothing. We call this creation ex nihilo. Something out of nothing. And that's important because it means that everything God has created is very, very good. And that was a radical idea at the time that Genesis was written. All of the other uh, ancient, ancient Near Eastern mythology, gods were created out of something. So if you read some of these mythologies and stuff, you'll see that creation was made out of a slain god. Or creation was made out of a, a slain uh, sea serpent. Or it was made out of some primordial ooze. But this is a radical idea that God, our God, creates something out of nothing. And that means there is nothing created that is not also very good. I've given you every plant and every tree for food. It says in chapter 1, verse 29. Chapter 2, verse 9, we hear that each of these is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I've chosen the poinciana tree and the mango, right? I think those are pretty appropriate. Chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden. So it's interesting. God's first command to us is to freely eat. Do you know what his last command is to us in the Bible? First command, freely eat. Enjoy this. Last command of the Bible, Revelation twenty-two seventeen: Drink freely. These are the bookend commandments of the Bible. Eat freely. Drink freely. Everything in between is a banquet to enjoy God. That's hard for a lot of us. Maybe those of us who are Christians or grew up in the church or are just religious or are super disciplined in the way we live our lives. The world is bad. We think bodies are bad. And thus, enjoyment, delighting in things must be bad if I enjoy myself too much. Yet God created the world. These bodies that we have, he created and will one day redeem so we can enjoy his creation. All of it. It's interesting, you know, that Jesus' parables show his intimate knowledge with the creation that he made, that he loved. So farming, fishing, flowers, fowl, baking, traveling, money, upper management, workplace HR issues are all things that Jesus deals with in his parables because he knows about them. He's intimate with them. All resourced by Jesus Christ. To which someone countered, yeah, but Jesus also healed. 
He also preached the good news. He also gave Himself for all. And so should we. And that's the tension between creation and redemption. The tension we should really all feel. It's a tension between the chapter 1 of God's story and chapter 3. We don't want our lives tipped too far to one side, so there should be a tension. Super spiritual, doing nothing but sharing and sacrificing of yourself is not all of life. But neither is over-loving, over-desiring created things. People, power, sex, money, food, and drink. And so there's a tension we should all feel at times between enjoying and recognizing I might be enjoying this too much. The Bible gives a good word to help us with this tension. God used a man named Paul to start a church in a place called Ephesus. And Paul left his friend Timothy behind to help pastor this church. They got so into Jesus that some people even burned their old books. Their books about magic. They said, we no longer want these because we want Jesus. They got so into Jesus, they even said, let's just make sure we don't enjoy ourselves too much with certain kinds of foods. Or even let's do away with sex in the context of marriage altogether. And so God had a word for these people through Paul. He says this in 1 Timothy 4, 3-5. Some forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. And this can help us, guys, in two ways. If we keep on indulging in beauty and in taste, poncianos, mangoes, good food, and sex with our spouse, they will provide decreasing pleasure, with which we're always, we're always looking for more beauty, right? We often find ourselves looking for the bigger taste because it's the law of diminishing returns. That simple pleasure, which was once simple, is no longer pleasurable anymore because we're looking to it to fulfill us. But if we delight in those creating, creative things while thinking the Creator... The Creator begins to fill us. He gives us the light and the pleasure and the satisfaction we're looking for. We can enjoy them without shame. We can delight without guilt because we can express gratitude with the Creator who gave all of it to us. But there's another way this verse helps us. If we can truly no longer thank the Creator to enjoy these things with thanksgiving, with our third hour of TV, our third mixed drink, right, our third scoop of ice cream, we might know that it's time to put down the spoon and turn to our Redeemer and ask for help. We can overindulge in even the good things that God creates. So, enjoy the poncianas and the mangoes. God has created for you to enjoy. Here's the third role in creation and the last one. We are called to collaborate with created stuff. Notice from, from EarthCam, if you will, that God isn't afraid to get his hands dirty when creating us. So he, he gets in the dirt and creates man from the dust. Other societies we find around this time, especially in the New Testament times, Greek and Roman societies, work was totally frowned upon. In fact, many people called it unleisure. It was the thing that prevented us from having a good time. In the ancient Near Eastern accounts, we find out that God created man for labor, to be his servants, to do all the stuff that God didn't want to do. But not so with our God. He gets in the dirt. He works the dirt and creates us and so calls man to work with dirt. He puts man in the garden he planted, chapter 2, verse 8, to, quote, work it and keep it, chapter 2, verse 15. Those two words in Hebrew, just collaboration, 
cultivating and using, it also conserving and guarding creation. It's, it's this mix of collaboration. Earth is meant to be tamed, to be pruned, to be utilized. And we hear this otherwise, right? We hear, have dominion over the earth. Subdue creation. Earth is meant to be tamed. But in a way that conserves the earth. Notice, not preserves the earth. You preserve pickles. That's what you preserve, right? God didn't tell us to treat the earth like pickles. God didn't put Adam and Eve in the garden and say, look, I made this really nice place. All right, I'm going to let you loosen it. Don't touch anything. No, He didn't. He told us to work the earth, to produce something out of the earth, to collaborate with it. Collaboration is using the creative stuff God has provided to enhance the garden, benefit humanity, and glorify God. God meant for us to spend our lives working, collaborating. And we find two kinds of collaborating, two kinds of work in chapter 2 of Genesis. Gardeners and namers. Gardeners are those who use the stuff of creation to, to synthesize it into something new. So for example, chefs, artists, stylists, legislators who produce laws, those who produce wealth and use it for good, chemists who get down to a molecular, molecular level and figure out how to help people with medicines. But there's also namers who make sense of creation for us. That's what Adam does, right? He organizes creation. He gives dignity to creation by naming each thing. Chapter 2, verse 19 through 20. And so it helps us make sense of what we see all around us. Parents are the first instructors. They're the first namers. Teachers carry on that work. But there are others as well, like accountants who help us organize and make sense of what we've used, what we've spent on. Doctors who diagnose. Lawyers who make sense of laws that God has given or His servant, the government, have have created. And that way they they name things, they organize things to help us make sense of all that God has put on this earth, including ourselves. And it's no surprise in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit puts in believers two different categories of gifts. Word gifts and work gifts. Gardeners and namers. And that's who we're created to be. We're subcontractors in God's creation project. But as we saw earlier, we can't make something new. Only God can do that. We can take the the raw materials and collaborate, right? Chefs have their ingredients. Artists have their clay. Stylists have their gel and their hair. Hedge fund managers. Well, they do actually create something out of nothing, many, many would say, right? But... This is similar, by the way. This sort of taking what exists and and collaborating with it, it's similar to Satan. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Satan can't create anything new. He can only take what is good that God has created and he manipulates it for evil. Sex, money, power, all good things Satan uses for evil. So one of the ways that I think we, we can fight the devil's work is with our work. So a lot of us think about fighting Satan, fighting the devil through prayer, through worship, through obedience, but it's also through constantly using the created stuff God has provided to make something that helps humanity flourish and that glorifies God. To outpopulate the devil and work. So you can do so. So when you go to your job and you produce something good, whether you're naming things, whether you're gardening things, You are actually defeating the devil when you produce something that helps humanity flourish and that glorifies God. Let me make one final observation here from Genesis. God commands humans to subdue the earth, 
have dominion over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. But because of this other tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we'll explore more next week, we find subduing hard. We find work very frustrating. The second Adam, Jesus, he arrives on the scene to say something very similar to what we hear in Genesis 1. Listen to what he says to his disciples. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Luke chapter 10. Listen to that. I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. Where do serpents and scorpions live? On the ground. Every creeping thing on the ground. Guys, if you really want to find your role in God's story, I really need to invite you to get to know Jesus because he restores to us not just ability, but power to subdue all that God has created. He restores us and is restoring us into his perfect image. And he helps us delight and always created it because it's just a hint of our eternity with him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for inviting us into this story. Thank you for creating us. You didn't do it because you were lonely or bored but because you wanted to include us into this this circle of love, this roundabout of love. You wanted to create an extra intersection where you might share your love with us. And the fact that we can reason, that we can intuit, that we can create, that we can think morally, are all evidence that we're made in your image, that we're designed to be in this relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Help us value that. Help us listen to that invitation and invite others into that relationship as well and so value the image of God in other people. Thank you that you've given us food that is pleasing to the sight, food that is good to the taste for us to enjoy, to delight in, not over-delight in, but as we delight in it, we thank you. As we thank in you, you can delight in all that we experience in this world. And thank you for helping us participate in this story by letting us collaborate in your garden, helping us be part of all you're doing in this world, that our work isn't meaningless, but actually by, by doing work, by being a gardener, by naming things, by helping make sense of this world, we're actually outpacing Satan himself who would want to manipulate the things of this world and use them for evil, we get to collaborate with the things of this world and use them to enhance humanity and help uh, one another flourish in it. God, we want all people to be invited into this story, to sense your invitation this morning. Help us sense that you're inviting us into this story through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.